Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Jill. Hi, everybody. I'm a compulsive overeater, 100-pounder, and my name is Jill. Hi, Hi. My God, my heart's about beating out of my chest. You know, what I want to say is, um, for the 12-year-old girl who just wanted to be invisible, it's really a big deal to stand here uh, behind a podium with a microphone and be part of a podcast network and stand um, in a room of, of, of fellows and share my experience, strength, and hope with regard to compulsive overeating. So, um, where do I want to start? I'll just start with my um, abstinence. Well, I'll just say that I've um, been in a program for about six and a half years, and I have a maintaining about 160-pound weight loss. I came into these rooms about 327 pounds, um, and all I do is show up. That's all I do. And for the newcomer, or if you're having a hard time, my hope for you is that you're uh, desperate and out of ideas. Um, so my abstinence is uh, three meals a day. And I used to say three meals a day with nothing in between. Um, but um, I like to refer to it as life in between. Um, and when I was, the snack part is important for me to talk about because when I was talking about my abstinence early on with my sponsor and developing my abstinence, you know, we talked about snacks and I had a moment of clarity and a moment of honesty, rigorous honesty, and I said I, I can't include snacks because I know I will turn a snack into a meal. So, and for me, if it's not an option, it's not a problem. So, again, my abstinence is three meals a day with life in between. Um, and my abstinence includes um, no sugar, no form foods, um, and I'll get back to that in a second, no snack foods, and um, I call my food in every day to my sponsor. Um, but what a form food is for me is anything that looks like something else. At my very first meeting, the speaker was talking about form foods, and I related to that, so that's why I include that in my abstinence. And again, that's anything that looks like something else. Sugar-free something is, it, my, it, my head plays games with that, and because it's sugar-free, my head says that I can eat the whole box. So I, And for me, that's like dancing on the edge of a knife. I just don't do that. Protein bar, um, my head says it looks like it's a candy bar to me, and I'll still eat 18 of them. You know, anything that's fat-free from Trader Joe's, from Whole Foods, because it's healthy, <laughs> granola, you know, my head says, and let me just say that I have a disease of perception, and I don't have a problem with food. I have a problem with, with life, and food became my solution. Um, so let's see, what else? So six and a half years, December 26th, I came in. Um, I walked into the relapse meeting up in Sherman Oaks, and I'll get to how I arrived there in a little bit of my story. But uh, um, my sponsor is here today, and I want to thank her for picking up the phone for the last six years and telling me the truth. It's such a miracle. It's just a miracle to me, that's all. You're a friggin' miracle. You're a miracle. And... Um, This program is 
has saved my life and changed my life. At 327 pounds, I can't even begin to tell you the horror and hell it was for me. Um, sorry. Okay, you in the podcast world, I'm crying. <laughs> I haven't left the room. I'm not making a snack. I'm crying. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so what it was like before I came in here at 327 pounds, I uh, was t- on two types of blood pressure medication. With sky high uh, blood pressure. I was taking acid reflex medication because there were many times where I would wake up in the middle of the night with something that I ate, probably too much of something, and would wake up in the middle of the night and, and have the acid go in my airway and gasp for air. And the next day, of course, I would do it all over again. Um, I There were many times where I would... I fly a lot for travel and, and business, and there were many times on the smaller airplanes where I couldn't get in my, I couldn't fasten my seatbelt, and I was too ashamed and embarrassed to ask the flight attendant for a seatbelt extension. And for most flights, I would just pretend like my seatbelt was, fast, was fastened. And for many times, I would, I would be on an airplane without being safe. Um, if I was asked to go to any kind of sporting event or any kind of concert or whatever, I would check the venue for the the seats, the dimensions of the seats to see if I would be able to go and fit in. And if I I thought that I wouldn't be able to go if the seat wasn't going to be big enough, I made up some excuse of why I couldn't go. Horseback riding, of course, had a weight limit, and that was completely out of the question. And, you know, and, and all I did was sit on the couch and eat, and I and I watched others live their life, and I lived my life on the sidelines. And that's what it was like. Didn't go to Disneyland many times for fear. I would, I don't know, I didn't go on that, that log ride because I was afraid that I would sink the log. I didn't go into places that would have a turnstile for fear I would get stuck in that little thing. And, you know, on and on and on it goes. I lived a life of fear. Um, oh, yeah, and then there were the barbecues that I didn't go to because I thought they would have that plastic furniture and I thought I would, I thought I would break the chair. Um, when I went out to restaurants, I was always afraid that the hostess would sit me in a booth and I wouldn't be able to get in. When I had a, I had a broken ankle at one time and I had a, was in a wheelchair at a cast and I was in a wheelchair and I was too small for the wheelchair and I actually physically got myself wedged in the wheelchair and so when I stood up, literally the wheelchair was like stuck on my ass. Like I was standing up with like the wheelchair. <laughs> Um, incredible and pitiful demoralization and then you know of course ordered three pizzas the next day it was always going to be different so um, that's a bit of what it was like um, let's see I, uh, when I started working with my, my sponsor she suggested I write a food history which I did and um, the reason behind that was just to kind of connect my emotions with my food and really really kind of taking an honest look of when it all started for me when I started using food. So my earliest recollection was when I was four years old. I remember there was a, it was around Halloween time and there was a, the neighbor's window was open and at four years old I 
helped myself into their open window when they were gone. And there was a, I mean, remember a big shiny stainless steel bowl on top of the refrigerator full of candy. And I took the candy and I took it and buried it in my backyard in a shoebox. Yes, my food crime started very early. Um, I remember at six or seven there was the Helms truck. And for those of you who are too young to know what the Helms truck was, it was basically like the ice cream man, but he sold baked goods. So, uh, yeah, at the age of six, to unbeknownst to my mother, um, I started a tab with a Helms man. <laughs> started a tab with a Helms man, and <laughs> at six years old. Yes, I'll put that on my tab. And because I'm a people pleaser, that included um, all the kids on the neighborhood as well. Um, when I was 12, there were two things that happened. And, you know, I talked about the 12-year-old that wanted to be invisible um, through a series of events that happened to me when I was 12. That's clearly, clearly I remember thinking, I just want to be invisible. And for me, the 327 pounds was about being invisible. And that was the payoff for me. Um, so what happened when I was 12 is first thing I was uh, molested uh, by a janitor in school. You know, and I've been thinking about this lately, like kind of like the sequences of that and, and how it all happened and what happened. And, you know, there's a bit of seduction that goes on before all of that happens. And he didn't offer me a shiny toy. He didn't offer me a new puppy. He offered me candy. And that was the shoe win for me. Um, you know, and after that happened, I remember feeling an incredible, incredible amount of shame and guilt and self-loathing. And shortly after my parents were divorced, um, uh, shortly after, a couple months later, my parents were separated and thus divorced. And it validated the same thing for me. Um, worthless, unlovable, um, incomprehensible demoralization. I remember, I remember when my dad left making up lies to my friends about why he wasn't there because I took all of that shame on. It was about me why he left. And so I didn't tell anybody about that for a long, 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 long time. And I lived with those feelings for a long, 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 long time. Um, when I was... Um, Teenager, I did a lot of drugs and alcohol and acted out sexually. Um, and then when I was 20, I was pregnant and married in that order. And that's when my compulsive overeating really took off. And I, how, that, how my compulsive overeating affected my pregnancy, I had to have a cesarean because my blood pressure was really, really high and I had toxemia. And I had no idea as a 20-year-old what that was, but I went home and looked it up afterwards, and it's, it's some sort of thing that blood poisoning or something. But in, in any effect, I had no idea what was going on. I was so disconnected from myself. No idea what was going on. I basically just, sh just showed up, and whatever came my way, just whatever came my way, um, and reacted to everything. Um, um, so basically ate and what it was like it was you know I would order two pizzas eat one before my partner got home and when she got home oh no I'm not really hungry I'll just have one or two slices and in the meantime I've thrown out that extra pizza box NOT pizza box and the neighbor's trash can in the alley at the bottom of the trash um, when I was 
I don't know, 30 or something around there, I um, became really kind of sexually, I, I became really curious about my sexuality, and there was a girl at work who was obviously gay. And I asked her one day, I said, um, can I ask you something? And she said, yeah, you can ask me anything. And I said, what do you guys eat for dinner? <laughs> what do you guys eat? Like, who asked that? <laughs> you know, I didn't want to know anything about the relationships. I didn't want to know anything about, you know, their lifestyle. Uh, I just wanted to know what restaurants you went to and where you shop for food. That, you know, I, I didn't want to show up at the party unless I know what was going on, unless, what, unless I knew what kind of food you had. And that was really what it came down to. Every thought that I had was about food. Um, so let's see. Um, that was pretty much what it was like. I lived my life on the sidelines. It's pretty much what it was like. And I ate. And I isolated and I hid. And, you know, my 327 pounds kept you, kept, kept you away from me. And it certainly kept me away from God and the sunlight and the spirit for certain. Um, you know, and I was under this big illusion that, you know, it, it, it's really kind of funny. It's like, who doesn't notice? You know, I thought I was being invisible. Who doesn't notice a 327-pound woman coming into the room? Come on. But you know what? I was so disconnected. I had no idea. I had, I, I had no idea that I was fat. At 327 pounds, I had no idea that I was fat. I, you know... I, when somebody got out their camera, I was the one that hid behind the couch or the bush or the barn or the bus, you know, or, you know, and back in those days, I would be the first one, you know, to manipulate my way to Rite Aid and rifle through all the pictures and throw out the ones that made me look fat. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I did. So how did I get here? I, uh, I had been in um, another fellowship for a long time, for about 12 or 15 years, in the fellowship that deals with people, places, and things, and basically sat there and bitched about everybody else, and if they only did what I wanted to, what I wanted them to do, how grand my life would be. And I remember thinking that if I could just find somebody that was just like me to be in a relationship with, my life would be just perfect. I mean, talk about self-centered and delusional. And I was in that program for a long time, like I said, but I didn't really work the steps, and I didn't have a sponsor, and I'm quite sure that I read my fifth step to myself, and that's what I did. <laughs> and that's how I worked the program. And so I kind of phased in and out of that program off and on, um, and uh, how I got here, I was in a six-year relationship and with somebody that I thought I would be with somebody my whole life. And I was up in uh, San Francisco on business, and it was a couple weeks before our six-year anniversary, and on the phone she tells me she doesn't want to be with me anymore. And when I asked her why, she said, because you're not taking care of yourself. And I think I said something like, well, what do you mean? But I knew what she meant. I knew what she meant. And so I came home, and of course her things were gone. And I remember thinking, how did I get here? What, what happened? How did I get to 327 pounds? And how did I get to come home to an empty house? And I felt really, really hopeless. Really hopeless. And so 
a friend of a friend said something about OA, and I had no idea what OA was, um, and said something about a meeting, a 12-step meeting in the Valley, the, the relapse meeting on a Sunday. And I said, okay, I'm there. And I, again, I had no idea what it was. I just needed a safe place to be for an hour. I needed a safe place to, to, to land, a place just to sit around other people, out of myself, out of my pain for just an hour. And when I walked into the room and heard the speaker tell my story, I knew I wasn't alone anymore. And for the first time ever, I knew it was different, and I knew that there was hope in these rooms. And I hung on the edge of my chair, sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, and hung on to every word that he said. And I remember they handed out newcomer chips, and I raised my hand as a newcomer, and I thanked everybody for being there, and I thanked the speaker, and I said, my name is Jill. At that time, I couldn't say that I was a compulsive overeater. I didn't do that for a little while. I just said, my name is Jill, and, I, and I've been struck willing. And I've felt that way ever since. And so you told me to get a sponsor, and I did. And you told me that if I worked the steps, my life would change forever, and it has. And I have a, and I have a life that's pretty close to the promises today as a result. I've finished my 12th step. Um, my 12, I've gone through the 12 steps, finished that up. I know a couple of months ago my sponsor and I are working on every single page in the big book right now. Um, which to me, for me, is, is, has all the answers. And so I brought some my, of my favorite passages to read, and I'll talk about the steps and, and God in a little bit, but um, just a little bit more on, on what I do, and we're talking about how I got here. Um, that's pretty much it. Um, I started working with a sponsor. We um, worked on a food plan. Now I, now, I didn't talk about, I do have an abstinence, but I have a red, yellow, and green food uh, food list as well. Red are, again, foods for me that, that I have no business eating. They're not on my abstinence. I can eat them, but, again, it's like dancing on the edge of a knife for me, and I don't want to do that. So if you listen to my abstinence, I can still have fast food. I can still have pizza. I can still have, I don't know, this, that, and the other, but it's dangerous for me, and I just don't do that. Yellow foods, pretty self-explanatory, and quite frankly, all my yellow foods should, should end up on my red list. I'm just not willing to yet. And green, green foods are pretty self-explanatory, and cheese comes to mind when I'm, we're talking about the yellow food, okay? And then cheese always needs a friend, as, <laughs> as my partner and Lucy and I sometimes talk about. Cheese, cheese needs a little cracker, a little piece of bread, or a little something. Needs a little friend, or like on the top of my salad sometimes, needs a little friend. Um, so, yeah, I worked the steps with my sponsor, and like I said, I just got finished working um, the 12 steps, and I'm working on the big book right now. So what do I do in the morning? I get up at about 5.45, 5.50. Sp- my first sponsee calls me at 6. Second sponsee calls me at 6.15. And then I... Um, I, my call with my sponsor is at 6.30. And then lately I've been listening to some spiritual kind of chanting music um, in the morning, and I've really gotten hooked up with yoga, and that really kind of dials me in too. Um, what I want to say too about working with my sponsor, there were a couple things that she told me. She told me that I needed to go to at least three meetings a week. Check, I can do that. She told me that that I needed to show up and be of service and never say no to a service request. Mm, okay. 
She told me to sit in the, in the front row and raise my hand and surround myself by the winners in the herd. And then she said that, that I couldn't be in a relationship for a year and my head about popped off my shoulders. And when she talked about that, and I have to say in looking back, that's probably the greatest gift that I gave myself. And when she talked about why that was so important, it's because, Jill, you don't have a clue about who you are. And how can you offer any, anything to anybody if you don't know who you are? And your abstinence needs to come first. You need to have a good foundation of abstinence because you can't build a, you can't build, you know, a relationship on a, on a deck of cards, if you will. And it was really important for me to be, build a foundation of abstinence, and that's how you build a house. And not to have any distractions, that my abstinence was the most important thing. And I still hold my abstinence as the most important thing in my life today, without question. You know, I could have a list of, you know, 20 things to do on my to-do list, but the only thing that I need to do is be abstinent. That's it. So what my life is, is like now, um, it's completely, completely different. Um, okay. So I have, uh, what do I want to talk about? I want to talk about... The fourth step took me about eight months to do. It was fearless, um, and it was really, I put a lot of thought into it. Um, read my fifth step, worked on my sixth and seventh uh, steps, worked my eighth step, and then when it got to the ninth step, I did my most, the easiest, if you will, amends first. Um, and I worked my way up into making amends to my son, who um, was 32 at the time. And it's probably when I made amends to my son, I had written a letter with the help of my sponsor. And he lives up in, uh, at the time he was living up in Lake Tahoe, and we sat on the shore of Lake Tahoe, and I read him my amends. And it was probably one of the most beautiful conversations I've ever had. You know, I want to say that my weight, lo- my weight loss is the most uninteresting part of my journey. What's interesting to me is the relationship that I have with my son today the relationship that I have with my now five grandchildren, three of them recently adopted from an abused home, and and the joy of jumping on a trampoline with those five grandchildren. Are you kidding me? I have video to prove it. <laughs> you know, talk about gratitude and talk about grace. From a girl who just wanted to be invisible and hid pizza boxes in a neighbor's trash can in an alley, jumping on the trampoline with her five grandkids, having a beautiful having a beautiful relationship with my son today as a result of this, and I take again I take that all of that seriously. And when I when I read my amends to my son, it wasn't just about lip service; it was about changing my actions. And I don't have a clue on how to be a mother. I don't have a clue on how to be a grandmother. But you guys show me and you tell me what to do. You know, my partner says, Jill, uh, one of the kids, grand, one of, you know, it's Easter time. Maybe you send, should send the kids a, like a Easter box full of stuff. Oh, you know, those kinds of things don't occur to me. Mm-hmm. You're right. I should do that. And I do. You know, Father's Day is coming up. Maybe you should do this. Oh, that's a good idea. And I do. You know, somebody helps me out. You know, maybe you should send a thank you card. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea, and I do. And I show up, and I try to be a woman in recovery today. 
and I turn towards God, I believe that there are two basic emotions. There's, for me, there's love and there's fear. I'm either turning towards God and love or I'm turning my back on God and turning towards fear. It's everything or nothing. What's my choice to be? And so in my prayers in the morning, I ask to be a woman in recovery. And I ask that God show me who he wants me to be and tell me what you want me to do. Because I don't have a clue. My best idea has got me to 327 pounds. So my relationship with my son is completely different today and one that I show up for. Um, How else is my life different today? Let's see. I've been to Paris twice. I've been to Ireland, I've been on a cruise, I've been to Maui, all abstinent. You know, and I do the same thing that I do in Santa Monica that I do in Paris. You know, whatever I eat in Santa Monica, I eat in Rancho Cucamonga, I eat in Paris, I'm on a cruise. And, you know, in Paris and on a cruise, you know, I made sure that I took podcasts with me and I made sure to check out where the meetings were. And I did my, still did my writing, and I did my reading, and I called my food to my sponsor the best I could, despite of the time difference. You know, nothing changes. You know, and when I went to Paris the first time three years ago, it was a life changer for me on, on, on a couple of different levels. First of all, um, it's where I fell in love with flowers, and I found myself really, really drawn to that and couldn't explain it. All I know is that I came back, you know, and I've been at the, the same job for 15 years, and I've shared this frequently recently because I'm in a big transition right now. I'm kind of in the hallway with all of this. You know, I've been at a job for 15 years, which doesn't serve me anymore. doesn't bring me joy. doesn't bring me passion. Just like my size 28 pair of pants no longer fit me, neither does my job. And so I want to be a floral designer. And so when I came back from Paris for the first time at 53, I guess, 54, I started going to floral design school. And I am maintaining a 4.0 grade point average. And I drive my happy ass down to school every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., an hour drive down to Huntington Beach, and then I drive back. And that's what I do. And I, I, what else do I want to say about that? I... I measure my spiritual fitness by my willingness to be inconvenienced by my recovery today, and that's the bottom line. If I don't want to be inconvenienced, I better check out my spiritual fitness because my disease is in the other room doing push-ups, and I'm clear on that, waiting for any loophole to, 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 to pop in and just kind of, you know. And I have thoughts today. My, my thoughts about food are just thoughts. They don't come in. They, they're, they're not like commands as they used to be. They're just thoughts. And I say, oh, okay, thanks, thought. There you are. Okay, and then next, and that's all. The, that's all the energy I give it. It's just a thought. I'm a compulsive overeater. You know, yes, I'm a hundred pounder. You know, and people have asked me, you know, does it, is it, yes, the compulsion has gone away, but I still have food thoughts. I'm a compulsive overeater. It comes in the form of a thought, not a command, and that's it. And I recognize that it's just that. Um, let's see. So. Let's talk about the joy of Paris to me again, which is you know really really how my life has changed. You know we took a a, a bike ride through Monet's garden. You know and to be on a bike, tons of gratitude in itself. But you know the beauty of riding on a bike through Paris, you know it was better than a bag of cookies in my book. I'm sorry. You know abstinence, abstinence. 
feels better than any bag of cookies tastes to me. And I'm clear that if I don't have my abstinence, that I'm going to lose the life, the life that I have today. And I have a really big life. So what does that mean? Is that my God has to be bigger than my life. And when I say that I don't have time to be of meetings, when I don't have time to be of service, you know, and when I start getting too big for my britches, I humble myself. And when I'm humble, my heart is open. And that means that I'm, I can show up for the day's teachings if I get out of my own damn way. So I want to talk a little bit about the steps and some of my favorite passages. I have about 10 minutes, so it's perfect. So I want to read about, again, some of my favorite passages, and I'll just start on step one. And this is from the OA 12 and 12. Let's see. I'll just start by reading the step. It says, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. This is page three, again, of step one. Clearly, if we are to live free of the bondage of compulsive eating, we must abstain from all foods and eating behaviors which causes problems. If we don't overeat, we won't trigger the reactions that makes us crave more. But this, too, has proven impossible for us to do by our willpower alone. Before we found OA, every diet or period of control was followed by a period of uncontrolled eating. This is because our malady was not just physical in nature, it was emotional and spiritual as well. We were obsessed with food and no amount of self-control or weight loss would cure us. Because of this obsession, the day always came when the excess food looked so inviting to us we couldn't resist and our firm resolutions were forgotten. Sooner or later, we always started overeating again and gradually or rapidly the eating worsened until at last we were out of control. This mental obsession was something we couldn't be rid of by our unaided, unaided human will. Another power stronger than ourselves had to be found to relieve us of it if we were to stop eating compulsively and stay stopped. Most of us have tried to deny ourselves that we have this disease. In a way, we are encouraged to take a good look at our compulsive eating, obesity, and the self-destructive things we had done to avoid obesity, the dieting, starving, over-exercising, or purging. Once we honestly examine our histories, we can deny it no longer. Our eating and our attitudes towards food are not normal. We have this disease. Well, that one about hit me over the head when I read it. I was like, all right. All right, so step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And this is page 11, again, from OA 12 and 12. Most of us, however, never reached suicidal desperation. Instead, we took comfort in a feeling that everything was all right as long as we had enough to eat. The only problem was that our compulsive eating progressed. It became harder for us to get enough. Instead of, back, instead of bringing comfort, the overeating backfired. The more we ate, the more we suffered, yet we continued to overeat. Our true insanity could be seen in the fact that we kept right on trying to find comfort in excess food long after it began to cause us misery. Once we honestly looked at our lives, it became easy for us to admit that we had acted insanely where food and weight were concerned. Many of us, however, were able to confine our compulsive eating to the hours when we were alone and to carry on with relations, relatively normal lives. And then step three. Let's see. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. This is the middle of page 24. We will no longer simply do what we feel like doing or what we think we can get away with. Instead, we will earnestly seek 
to learn God's will for us, then we will act accordingly. We give up fear and indecision, knowing that if we are sincere, a higher power will give us the knowledge of our best course in life, along with the willingness and ability to follow that course even when it becomes difficult and uncomfortable. And I underlined a thousand times uncomfortable. There are many, many times where I have to play, ask for the willingness to be uncomfortable. God forbid I feel an effing feeling. God forbid I feel an effing feeling. You know, and when I feel a feeling today or when my sponsees say they're having a feeling, I say, hip, hip, hooray. Hip, hip, hooray. Thank God you have a feeling today. You know, and the rest of this paragraph talks about me and what I do with food and what I still do with food is that I'm a liar and a cheat. You know, I'm the girl that wants to call in two pieces of chicken when it's two houses, a whole chicken. And my, I had a sponsee that I was working with one time, and she debated that she should have two pieces of Swiss cheese because the Swiss cheese has holes in it. So the two pieces of cheese is really one piece of cheese. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I do. Looking for any loophole. Looking for the shortcuts. That's what I've done my whole entire life. Step seven, and this is out of um, the AA 12 and 12, which, at, which says, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. The chief act, this is on page 76. The chief activator of our defects has been self-centered fear, primarily fear that we would lose something we already possessed or would fail to get something we demanded. Living upon a basis of unsatisfied demands, we were in a state of continual disturbance and frustration. Therefore, no peace was to be had unless we could find a means of reducing these demands. That again hits the nail on the head for me. Primarily fear that I'm going to lose something that I thought I already possessed or fail to get something that I demanded. Okay. And my all-time favorite out of the big book if I can find it is oh. <clears throat> out of the big book page 30 chapter 3 more about alcoholism most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it in the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real, real alcoholic ever regave, recovers control. All of us felt at times we were gaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. We are like men who have lost their legs. They will never grow new ones. And then it goes on to say, We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there have been brief recovery, followed always by still worse relapse. 
Um, and then in the middle of the page, it talks about on page 31, despite all we can say, we who are real alcoholics are not going to believe that we that they are in that class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will still try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. If anyone who is showing an inability to stop to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. Um, yeah, so, you know, I can read these pages over and over and over again, and it brings, there's such a grace about it for me. It really, really speaks the truth to me, and it's honest, and it really tells my story over and over and over again. And then the last one I just want to end with is, again, from the big book, page 415, at the bottom of the page says, I'm a, success, I'm a success today if I don't drink today. There is absolutely nothing in the world more important to me than my keeping this alcoholic sober. Not taking a drink is by far the most thing I do. Is not taking a drink is by far the most important thing I do each day. Thank you for letting me share. Mm-hmm.